Thank you, Brother Courtney, for that prayer of supplication. And thank you, Brother Richard and Sister Heather, for leading us in our singing uh, this, this morning. And I always enjoy hearing the voices of God's people ringing out in the sanctuary. And it uh, sounds so good. And, uh, and we also thank the Lord for Amy and her talent and, and others. Uh, Courtney on the drums and Ryan on the guitar and, and, uh, and Mark Armstrong on the horn. So we've got some good talent in music around, uh, amongst us as well. This morning we're going to be concluding the uh, first epistle of John. I know as uh, Tim was pointing out, we've had a taste of John in all different aspects of his gospel. The, the book of the Revelation and, and now in uh, 1 John chapter 5 as you turn your Bibles there. And last Sunday I was uh, uh, preaching out of uh, chapter 5 and, and we... Uh, we're getting to a point at, at, at the close of, of the, as John is bringing his epistle to a close, and uh, as we look here uh, in, in uh, chapter 5, uh, you know, it, it's so interesting to think about, here's John, he's owned up in age, uh, you know, he's the only surviving apostle, and he's there in the city of Ephesus, uh, somewhere around uh, AD 90, 95, He's writing to the churches in the, in the region to encourage and to inspire them. And, but these letters are also very relevant to us and pertinent to us. And so the words uh, of John are, are timeless because they're divinely inspired. And so as, as we look here, we, as John is writing to the churches in Asia Minor, we sense a, a, a spirit of intentionality about everything that he's writing. Even, I mean, coming out of the gate in chapter 1 of First John, uh, in verse 4, John says, and you get an essence of, of, of what he's, the purpose of his writing this, this epistle to the churches, to the early Christians, uh, many who are beginning to suffer persecution and, 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 and who are going through the um, trials of dealing with false prophets and false teachers. In verse 4 of chapter 1 of, the, of this epistle, John says, and these things we write, because he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So in partnership with the Lord, he's writing to Christians. He says, in these things we write to you that your joy may be full. That you as Christians, that we as Christians may receive the full benefit of the joy of being a part of the eternal family of God. Christianity is not about drudgery. It's not about following a long list of do's and don'ts and living in rigid legalism. Christianity is living the abundant life as Jesus says he's come to give. And, and there, there should be just an inherent joy that goes with that. And John says, I want your joy to be full. And so as John is wrapping up here in chapter 5, I want, before we launch into verse 13, which is beginning the text of the message this morning, I want you to see how John is, is, is bringing forth a closing and convincing argument for the truthfulness and the exclusivity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's wanting his readers, he's wanting us to understand and realize that in the myriad of, of religious options that are out there, including the false heretical teachings that were infiltrating the church, John is saying there's only one true message of salvation. Because there's only one true Savior, and it's Jesus Christ. 
And so as you look at, at verse 11, for instance, and he says, and this is the testimony that God has given. And you remember, as I was closing out the message previously in verse 10 and uh, or, or verse 9 and 10 leading up to this, we were talking, John was pointing out the importance of realizing that not only do we have the faithful witness of men, but infinitely more important than that, we have the very testimony, the witness of God. And so as, as, as John is bringing this, this great conclusion, his, his closing arguments, he's saying that we, in verse 11, and this is the testimony that God has given. This is it. He's given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. So you might think of this as, as almost being like a, a crescendo that John is bringing up to the, the, the closing of this great epistle, this, this letter to the churches. John is building up like an orchestra as it's bringing to its conclusion. I, I don't know how many of you watch the televised fireworks shows, you know, from maybe from the uh, mall in Washington, D.C., or from up in uh, uh, New York City there at the uh, Hudson River. But, you know, they had orchestra music in the background. And, and you could tell when you're getting to the end of the fireworks show because, I mean, the spectacularness of the intensity of the fireworks just kept building and kept building. I mean, you're thinking, how many more can they shoot up in the air? And the orchestra's coming to a pitch as to say, this is the big one here. This is it. This is the climax. And John is, is bringing this almost to like a climactic conclusion when he says, He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God. It's as simple as that. The Gospel is as simple as that. Jesus Christ is not just the deliverer of a message. He's not just the extender of eternal, of eternal life. He is the message. He is eternal life. If you don't have Christ Jesus by His Spirit living in you, you've missed it. You've missed it all. It's not about religion. It's not about rote memory. It's about having a personal, intense, divine, eternal relationship with the Son of God whereby He abides in you and you in Him. And He says, He who has the Son has life. If you don't have the Son, then you do not have eternal life. And so that's really what it's all building up to. Make sure, John says, make sure, make blessed sure that of all the things that you have Jesus. And folks, that's as much as I could say to you. I couldn't have a benediction and let you go home, but I got to give you money's worth. So as we move on in to verse 13 of chapter 5, I want you to see as John, and, and, and at this point, since he's already given the crescendo, the great climax, he's now wrapping it up, if you will. And he does so with words of, of assurance, words of confidence. Look, you know and I know, we live in a world that is, is so volatile, unpredictable, chaotic, dangerous. Uh, and so 
if ever there's a time that God's people have needed reassurance and needed confidence, it's now. John understands that. He un because God understands that. Christ understood that about the first century church. He understands it about the 21st century church. So John is in essence, as he launches into verse 13, toward the conclusion of this, uh, this first letter, John wants to give us what I call five assurances. Things that you can know. You've heard that expression. You can take it to the bank. Based on everything else that he said, John says, now in summary, you, you make sure you remember this. And he'll say this, he'll lead into it with saying, I know, or we know. And he mentions the word know, or to be certain of, seven times in these remaining verses, because he wants you to know that you know that you know. You can take to the bank, these wonderful assurances. So look with me as we begin in verse 13 of chapter 5 of 1 John. John says, these things, and let me just pause there, because he's not talking about just the immediate things that he just said, or he's not talking about what he's just about to say. It, it, that is a very conclusive and, 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 and inclusive statement, because John is very, virtually saying, go back to chapter 1, verse 1. And bring it all the way up through verse 12. And so John said, all this letter, everything that I've written to you, he says in verse 13, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know, there it is, that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. So you see, the first thing that John wants you and me to know with all the unpredictability and the volatility of the world in which we live, even with our own personal lives, things can get haywire. Things can get kind of crazy. John says, you can know. You, you can wake up in the morning and, and, and go to bed at night knowing that as a child of God, you have eternal life. How? Through your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to write, John says, to those who believe in the name of the Son of God. The purpose of this very letter is for those of you who believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, you may know that you have eternal life. And not only that, that you will be inspired to continue to believe. And it's not a past tense thing, ladies and gentlemen. We talked about how our salvation is a continuous process. That's why Paul says, work out your salvation. Every day you get up, live out your salvation. Let the life you live tomorrow morning and the next day and the next day be a reflection of your salvation. It's not, your salvation is not grounded in some ecstatic emotional experience that you had years and years ago that you vaguely remember signing some kind of a card or walking an aisle, talk to a preacher you can't even remember, praying a prayer that you forgot the words of. No, it's every day. If Jesus lives in our hearts, we live with a living salvation. And that's what we want to continue to believe. Jesus Speaking through John in John's Gospel, it's, in, it's interesting just to see the parallel between the Gospel of John and the Epistle of John because it's the same Lord that's inspiring John. But if you were to go back into chapter 20 of the Gospel of John and look beginning in verse 31, listen to the similarity and the parallel of the language of the same kind of assurance that John is given even in the writing 
of the gospel. In chapter 20 of John's gospel, verse 30, he, it says, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples. John's writing in retrospect, looking back over the life and the ministry of Jesus, which are not written in this book. But John saw them, didn't he? He was a first-hand witness. We just know part of the story, folks. John saw it all. He says, oh, look, this is not everything. <laughs> There's not enough time. There's not enough paper to write. All the marvelous miracles and powerful teachings of Christ. But he says, there's enough in here. But in verse 31, he says, but these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing, listen to what he says there in verse 31 of John's Gospel, chapter 20, verse 31, he says, that these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. He's not just a teacher. He's not just a miracle worker. He's not a great philosopher. Listen, Jesus Christ, John says, this one that I have written to you about, he is the promised Messiah. He is the very blessed one. He is the Son of God. He is divine. He is the very one who has brought salvation. He is the Son of God. And John says, and that believing, you may have life in his name. Doesn't that sound very similar to what he's saying there? I know, even my wife says, honey, you, it sounds like you're being repetitious. I says, well, I am, sweetheart. That's because John's repetitious. I can't help it. He's keep re repeating some of the same themes. And, and so John is saying, these things that I've written to you in the face of all the false teachings, in the face of the defections of, of superficial church members who've left the fellowship, and that was upsetting to those early Christians. They're trying to sort out what's going on. These false teachers and preaching things that just they'd never heard the apostles talk about, about Jesus saying that he wasn't truly divine or he wasn't truly human or, or, or things like that. And, and then to top it off, they were able to, to lead some of the members of the church out of the church. And John made it clear they've left us because they were never of us. They really didn't even belong to us in the first place because they were not true believers. So in the midst of that, John says, I want you to know with assurance that if you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and He lives in you, John reminds them of the power of authentic faith in Christ to give us the assurance of eternal life. I'm going to live forever. Do you, can you say that? I, I'm going to live forever. I'm not going to die, not eternally, ever. I'll go to sleep and my soul will find its way into the very presence of God where I'll continue on and an eternal and a glorified existence in the very presence of God and with those loved ones who've gone on ahead of us. So it's by faith, as if to reiterate what the Apostle Paul told us in Ephesians chapter 2. It's not by your works, it's not by your merits, it's not by religion, it's not by Judaism, it's not by the law. Paul says, for by grace are you saved through faith. That not of yourselves. It is a gift. You get that? It is a gift of God. And not by works, lest any man should boast. If you've got Jesus, brothers and sisters, if He's living in your soul, in your heart, you know it, then you know you have eternal life. As we move further, there are other wonderful promises, assurances, because of our faith in Jesus Christ. You can know, you can be certain of our prayers being answered. 
Does that mean, uh, does that matter to you? I don't like to just have mundane prayer time. I don't like to just go through the motions of praying. I see prayer as a, as a, a, as a personal, interactive engagement with God. Now, can my mind wrap around the idea that uh, old Charlie Martin can have an actual conversation with the sovereign God of, the, of, the, of, the, of creation? That we can converse and that I can speak to him and he can speak to me and I can make requests of him and that he would actually hear me? Not only hear me, but he would actually answer my prayers? Folks, that's mind-boggling. But it's a reality. And because of the assurance of our salvation and our relationship with Jesus Christ, John says you can know that your prayers will be answered. One of my favorite passages in the New Testament. Verse 14. Now this is the confidence that we have in Him. That if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And... If we know that He hears us, whatsoever we ask, or whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of Him. Wow! You get excited almost. If anyone sees his brother sinning, a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask, and he, speaking of the Lord, will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. Their sin leading to death I do not say that he should pray for that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin not leading to death. Now, we'll have to explain some of that, but the fact is, John says, if you pray, and if you know, well, let me back up. The first criteria, if you know Christ, and if he abides in your heart, then as you pray, I can't say this to superficial believers. I can't say this to people who are outside of the fellowship of, of, of the body of Christ. But I can say this to you. Why? Because the Word of God says it to me. John says this is the confidence we have. What? In the way we pray? In the method of our prayer? In the posture of our prayer? No! He says this is the confidence we have in Him. The one we're praying to. That he hears our prayers. And so as we pray, look at the look at the God in principle of how we pray. Now this is the confidence that we have in him. That if we ask anything according to his will. We've heard that before, haven't we? Yeah. Because John said it in his gospel. Jesus said it in John's gospel. In John chapter 15 verse 7. Jesus says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will and it will be done unto you. Now Jesus is in no way implying that he or the Father are genies in heaven where you rub your Bible and says, oh Lord, I really want that Cadillac. Oh Lord, I, need a promo I want that promotion. And, you, and then poof. No, no. You read your Bible. You fellowship with God. You walk with Him. If He is abiding in you by His Holy Spirit, ladies and gentlemen, as you read the Word of God and you spend time with God and you're in fellowship with Him and His Word abides in you, abide means to stay, take up house, to live in, then you're in a position to know the will of God. The Spirit of God is not going to lead you to ask amiss 
of the word of, of the will of God. And that's what John is highlighting right here. It's our close fellowship with the Lord that we talked about in verse 13 that emboldens us in our prayers. I like how Paul put it in Ephesians 3.12. He says, we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. You don't have to come tentatively before the presence of God or the throne of God. You don't have to sheepishly say, oh, Lord, if you don't mind, you know, oh, I was just thinking. No, 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 no. If you're right with the Lord and He abides in you and you have a meaningful daily walk with Him, you can walk right into the throne room of God no matter what time of day it is and you can boldly hold your head up and say, Father, in my spirit, I believe this is what you want me to ask you for. John says, take it to the bank because if your heart is seeking not your personal and your selfish wants and needs, if you're seeking God's will, God's going to do it. God's going to answer a prayer. You know, God answers all prayer. That's right. He answers all the prayers of His faithful people. Now, granted, sometimes the prayer is yes. Resoundingly. God will answer it. You get just what you ask God for in agreement with His, His will. But then there are times where God, in His infinite omniscience, His providence, He knows, uh-uh. You, you think this is what is going to be best for you. But I know what's best. So sometimes the answer is no. And then sometimes the answer is wait. How many of y'all have experienced those three varieties of answers to prayer? <laughs> yeah. I'm not the most patient person. And so, you know, sometimes and I, you know, I'll scratch my head. But, but Lord... I just, I just knew this is what you wanted to happen in my life. I just knew that this is what you would want to develop. But you see, that's where our faith comes in and our trust. But we have this boldness to come before the Lord. And we can boldly pray not only for ourselves, but as you look at verse 16 and 17, John uses as an example how we can, use, we can have this same confidence in praying for other believers. In praying for other believers. He says, if, you, if anyone sees his brother, and that would be sister, two ladies, if anyone sees his brother or sister sinning, a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. In other words, we should care about one another in the body of Christ. If you know that I'm in, living in sin or committing sin or committed a sin, and, and, and you don't see me making efforts to repent of that sin, you know, of course, Jesus said in Matthew 18, you go to me in private, out of love. Confront me, please. And if I repent, then he says, you've won a brother. But, but even beyond that, do you realize you have a responsibility to pray for that brother or sister? And say, Lord, help them. Help them to turn back. Help them to see the mistake. Help them see where they have missed, you know, stepped your, your will. And, and, and help them there. And he says, if that is a sin not leading to death. Now I know some of you are intrigued already. Wait a minute. Wait. Hold. Time out, preacher. Talk to me about the sin that leads to death. Because John basically said, look, look. If, if, if they've committed a sin. Now remind you, he's talking about believers. He said... What? A Christian can, can commit a sin that, that God would just say, okay, 
time to check you out. Do you remember the, the, the names of Ananias and Sapphira? Acts chapter 5. They had the audacity to lie to the Holy Spirit of God over a menial thing. How much money they were given to the church. Lying to God. As if they were giving it all when they knew good and well they were holding back. Now, Peter, you noticed in that, that little episode, and that's just one illustration. Do you notice that Peter didn't say, folks, time out, time out. We've got to have a prayer meeting. Brother Ananias and Sapphira are in trouble. We, we've got to call upon God. Did you notice that Peter didn't have a prayer for him? He didn't ask God. He knew. He knew. You've gone over the line. You've blasphemed the Spirit of God. And with that, as Jerry Clowers would say, they fell, dropped dead, graveyard dead. Right there at Peter's feet. Don't tell me God doesn't take sin seriously. And that's what John is trying to separate out. You may recall in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 30, Paul's writing to the church at Corinth. He says, have you ever wondered how it was that some of you brothers and sisters just died? Some of them got really sick, but some of them died. And he pointed out that they were abusing the Lord's Supper. They were coming in and getting drunk, eating everything, hoarding everything selfishly. And in doing so, they were, they were blaspheming the very Spirit of God. And God killed them. They were believers. So, I'm not saying that you need to be paranoid and, and, and be living in paranoia. But, but listen, understand, God takes sin seriously. If a true believer, a genuine believer in Jesus Christ begins to engage knowingly in sin so much that it becomes heinous in the eyes of God and it begins to damage not only their personal witness but the witness of the church and even more so the good name of Christ. God in His providence and His power because after all, the Bible says, it's appointed unto man once to God die. After that, the judgment. Guess who holds the appointment book on your life and my life? So John says, in the rare cases that that believer has already been marked by God and they've gone over the line where they have, God sees the future. He knows there's nothing productive left in their life to honor Him. God says, rather than let them continue to make a fool of themselves and of the church and my name, I'm bringing them home prematurely. Well, prematurely to us. Boy, things get really quiet. Can I make just a clarification real quick? Because some, sometimes people mistake this with the, the so-called unpardonable sin. Preacher, what, what is the unpardonable sin? Is it divorce? Is it, is it homosexuality? You know, in its context, if you want to go back to Mark chapter 3, verse 29, you'll see where Jesus was confronted by some of the Jewish leaders and they were accusing him of being Beelzebub, the, the demon, the devil, that he was actually working for the devil, the Spirit of God who was working the miracles through Christ. They were saying, that's just the devil. And Jesus said, whoa. <laughs> 
I hate to tell you boys, but you've just committed the sin to, to which there is no forgiveness. Do you understand the seriousness of people blaspheming the holiness of God? And of course the unpardonable sin today is simply this. It, it ties into just what John was saying. If you don't have the Son of God in you, if Jesus Christ does not abide in you, and I'm talking about the outside world, I'm talking about the secular world, those who have rejected Christ, those who have no need for Christ, those who have followed after false religions, they don't understand, but they have as much as pronounced an eternal death sentence upon their soul. For a person to reach the end of this life and never have accepted Jesus Christ fully by faith, trust in Him as their Lord and Savior, and to be at that point where your heart is about to stop and you breathe your last, there is no hope. There is no purgatory, as the Catholics may try to teach. There is no uh, proxy salvation, as the Mormons would have you to believe. You can't pray for somebody that's died and say, Lord, would you just forgive them? It's too late. The unforgivable sin is to enter into death and not have Jesus Christ living in your heart because He is eternal life. And the only thing that lies ahead for that person is eternal damnation. I need to move along. That is an intriguing and complex subject. Another promise that we have in addition to knowing that we have eternal life, knowing that our prayers are not only heard but answered by God, but hallelujah. Verse 18, we know that as, as children of God, we have victory over sin. Last Sunday we sang that old song. I love it. Victory in Jesus. Amen? The world would like to defeat us. The devil would like to defeat us. The grave would like to defeat us. But I've got news for them. It ain't going to happen. Pardon the English. Why? Because of my relationship with Jesus Christ. I know just as John tells us right here. Look at verse 18. Another one of those knows. He says, we know that whoever is born of God. That's born again as Jesus talked about. New life in Christ. Whoever is born of God does not sin. But he who has been born of God keeps himself. And the wicked one does not touch him. So a Christian, a true believer of Jesus Christ, lives in a pattern of righteousness. And that characterizes a true believer. A true believer <clears throat> is not going to be caught up in a pattern, a repetitious pattern of sin. A lifestyle of sin. If a, if a person claims to be a Christian and they are continually living in sin, committing sin, they've just betrayed the fact that they're truly not a Christian. Christ does not abide in them. And so we have the, God's indwelling presence in us to convict us of sin and to lead us in the ways of Christ. That's the powerful value of the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 14, verse 16, Jesus says, He says, I will pray the Father and He will send another helper. I like that word. Talking about the Holy Spirit. Another helper. I don't know about you. I need all the help I can get to live the Christian life. You can't do it successfully on your own, ladies and gentlemen. We all need help. And Jesus says, I will pray the Father, there in John 14, 16, and he will give you another helper 
that He may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him, but you know Him because He dwells with you and will be in you. That's something that Jesus in the incarnate God-man could not do. He could not live in people, not as a, not, not as in human form, but he knew that God would send yet the third person of the Holy Trinity who would be able to occupy the hearts and the souls and the minds of followers of Christ. In verse 26 of that chapter 14 of the Gospel of John, he says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all the things that I said to you. Have you ever been just about ready to do something that you know was not in accordance to God's will? Have you ever just been ready to just, just say something or do something, maybe in the heat of emotion or in, in the circ uh, circumstances, and, and, and that, vo that, that voice inside of you says, uh, 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 Charlie, hope, oh, stop, stop, think about it. Think about it. You, you don't want to say that. You're a child of God. You, you don't want to do that. You don't want to watch that. No, no you, you are a child of God. Who do you think saying that to you? It's not your flesh. Your flesh is going to say, go for it, brother. Hey, go for the gusto. No, no, no. The Spirit is our helper. Not only does He convict us when we are in sin, but He helps us. He reminds us of the things of God, the things that you have learned and studied in the Word of God. Listen, the Holy Spirit helps the Christian to live the victorious life. Do you remember back in chapter 4, 1 John, where John says, yeah, and you little children, you are overcomers. You're overcomers. You've overcome them that are in the world because greater is He who is in you than is He who is in the world. You are of God, little children, and you have overcome them because greater is the Spirit, the Helper in you, than is He who is in the world. How do we live a sinless life? I know, as soon as you saw that, you probably like me. Wait a minute. How can, does that mean, based on what John is saying here, when he says, and we know that whoever is born of God does not sin, John's not saying that you are sinless, that you're perfect, not on this side of eternity. You may recall back in chapter 1, verse 8, John said, if you claim that you don't sin, he says, you're a liar. If you claim that you don't sin, you're making God a liar. And then he follows it right with verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. God knows we still live in a sinful world. God knows that we still live with this flesh nature that tempts us every day. God knows that there are evil powers at force trying to woo you towards sinful things. And he sends his advocate. That's what John said in 1 John chapter 2 in verse 1. He says, My little children, these things I write to you that you may not, that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, or since you're going to sin, we have an advocate, and it's capitalized, with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So when we do stumble in sin, you're not on your own. You, you've got the best defense attorney in all of heaven. Jesus Christ standing at the right hand of God the Father and said, Lord, yeah, Charlie messed up, no doubt about that, but he's one of ours. Look, you'll see the blood. 
Another wonderful assurance that we have in addition to knowing that we have victory over sin is, our, is that God is, is who he claims to be. Our God claims us for himself, but he is who he claims to be. Look at verse 19. We know that we are of God and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. So what is John saying there? As, as God's people, how important is it for us to know that we belong to God? I used to love to sing that song, Now I belong to Jesus, Jesus belongs to me. Not for the sake of years of time, but for eternity. Do you understand that? That is the dynamic of the Christian relationship with Christ. He, the Son of God, belongs to us. We belong to Him. And that's what John is reassuring these wonderful Christians in that first century of right there. We know that we are of God. And he points out in, in contrast the fact that the world is under the sedation of Satan and sin. That's not us. Praise God. We've been delivered from the domain of darkness. We've been snatched out of the hand of the devil. We're no longer puppets at the end of a string that Satan jerks and controls. We're no longer children of the devil, as the Bible says. We are children of God. And we belong to Him. And that's what Jesus is pointing out. We are safe and we are secure. It's amazing how the world sedates people. And you know, once it gets them under the spell of materialism and sensualism and popularity and all the things that, that people grasp for, it, you know, they, they're in like a drunken stupor. And they're not even conscious of the critical state of their spiritual eternal, eternal nature. And so therefore, it's, it's like, you know, Satan gets them in a web. I uh, heard a uh, news story read just a news brief this week about a postman that was on his route and, and he was walking and he heard this horrible sobbing and crying behind a, a tall bush you may have read it he looked behind the bush and there was a teenage girl huddled back there crying her eyes out she was, she was almost panicking saying mister they're going to get me he, the, the, the man that owns me he's, gonna, he's, he's coming after me and, and, and the postman said no, you, no, no he's not honey he says I'm here I'm going to protect you Turned out this girl, like so many, were, were, was a runaway. She ran away from a group home that she was in. And, she, and, and this is the way that, that sex slave trafficking human slave system works. There are people out there that befriend these young girls. Make them feel like they're going to be their friend. And they bring them into what appears to be a safe place. They feed them and they give them what things that they need. And usually they'll supply drugs and alcohol. And, and before you know it, they got them under addiction to these, these drugs. And, and then in this girl's case, not only was she kept in like a drunken stupor with drugs uh, and, and being trafficked for, for sexual purposes, but they kept her tied to a chair. You know, I thought about that. How horrible, how horrible to exist like that. But do you understand, in a spiritual sense, that's the way people live their lives in this world today? So many of them sedated by materialism and selfishness and the things of the world that they don't even realize consciously who they are. And Satan keeps pumping this stuff to them. He's got them tied in their sins and, and their shackles and, and they can't escape. Don't tell me we don't need to be teaching people about Christ, that we don't need to be sharing the gospel out there. You don't know the people that are in bondage to the devil and sin and need to be liberated. Hey, listen, we don't have to worry about that because we've been set free. 
The devil has no hold on us. He can't take us. He can't reclaim us. We're safe and secure. Jesus said in John's Gospel chapter 10, He says, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. The sheep follow me and those that the Father puts in my hand, no one shall in no wise snatch them out of my hand because no one is stronger than my Father. And I'm grateful to know that. But heaven forbid that we would become content and complacent when so many people around us, whether they admit it or not, are living in bondage to sin. And as Christians, we best not flirt with the world. You say, oh, I, I belong to God now. Hallelujah. I can go out there and dabble in a few things. You might want to listen to the admonition of James. James had a way of telling things like it was. In chapter 4 of James, James says to those believers, he says, adulterers, adulteresses, that gets your attention, right? He said, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. There's no room. There's no wiggle room for a child of God to be out there dabbling in the things of the world, thinking that, oh yeah, I'm safe and secure in Christ. Don't forget the sin that leads to death. But anyway, the last of the points that John makes here is he's wrapping it all up. Chapter 5. Look with me in verse 20 and 21. John says, Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the, from, <clears throat> from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm reading that. Uh, verse 20, I was reading that the wrong letter. That sounded good. Verse 20, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know Him. Now this is twice He's used know in this verse. That we know that the Son of God has come and given us an understanding and that we know Him who is true and we are in Him who is true in His Son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Our final promise is in the fact that our Savior, our Lord, He Himself, as we saw in our first lesson in the Revelation this morning, Jesus Christ is indeed the Son of God. He is... God. And to know and to belong to God, we must accept the deity of His Son. The heretics, the Gnostics that were infiltrating that first century church that John is writing to, they were teaching elsewise. And there are plenty of false teachers out there and false religions out there that would have you to try to have you to believe that Jesus is not the Son of God. Oh, he's a wonderful prophet of God. He's a powerful teacher. He's a compassionate social movement leader. But they stopped short at admitting that God the Father and God the Son are one. John, uh, uh, Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, In him, speaking of Christ, abides the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Wrap your mind around that. John says, this Jesus that we proclaim and hold up, in Him 
In this same Jesus of Nazareth, this baby born in a stable in Bethlehem, this Jesus who was tortured and hung on a cross, he says, in him is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Jesus Christ, even on the earth, possessed all the divine attributes of God the Father in heaven. And this is the Jesus who has come into the world to invite us to turn to him by faith, confessing our sins, repenting of our sins, and trust him and to obey the principles of his word, to follow him. And you can bank on the fact that what he says he has done for us, he has done. And he continues to do, and that is save us from the awful penalty of our sins. We know that he is fully God, as Paul said in Colossians 2.9. But John, in his gospel, and in the introduction of his epistle, going back to chapter 1, almost like it goes full circle, John reminds us that yes, he was fully God, but he was also fully man. He says in verse 1, chapter 1, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled, concerning the word of life. This is God. And I think it's interesting, John being the older apostle, in that term of endearment, says, little children. My precious little children. And I believe God, uh, John loved all those Christians, knowing what they had sacrificed to follow Christ and what they were sacrificing to continue to be faithful to Christ. And in his aged state, in his godly wisdom, and he's saying, little children, just be careful. Don't follow after idols. And he's not necessarily talking about the little statues. He's simply saying, Guard the allegiance of your heart. Don't let anything come close to taking the place that Jesus rightfully holds in your life as your Lord and your Master. Stay away from anything or anyone that might become an idol in your life. Stay pure to Christ. And that would be my challenge to me and to you as we close this service today. Celebrate these wonderful promises knowing that you know that you have eternal life. Your prayers are answered. You have victory over sin. God claims you as His own. You belong to Him. He belongs to you. And our Savior is indeed the Son of God. Celebrate the wonderful assurances that God's Word gives us as His children. Let's stand to our feet. I'll offer a prayer of benediction. I trust that God's word has spoken to your heart and will continue to speak to your heart as you go forth from this Lord's day into the afternoon activities and then into the week ahead. Let's pray.